Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 6. We are, we are entering into the middle of a story and can be a little odd and awkward if you're first encountering it. It's the story of two men, of Herod the king of Galilee and John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, who had had some pretty harsh words to say about King Herod. And so we pick up the story in verse 17. Herod sent men who arrested John, bound him, put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But, but an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, "'Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it.' And he solemnly swore to her, "'Whatever you ask me?' I will give you even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? And her mother replied, The head of John the baptizer. And immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for his guests, he did not want to refuse her, so immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Special welcome today to Julie Chamberlain. Thank you so much for sharing your gifts of music with us. Always just such a lovely treat. Uh, we're so blessed in that regard. And I also want to uh, identify, so I'm coming to the house there, Ricky. Uh, Ricky, stand up. Ricky Hauser is, is our new uh, worship leader for the, for the 927 service, hailing from Pennsylvania, leaving your wife there for a while while she tries to sell the house. And so you're here alone for a little bit, except this weekend you brought your mom, Bobby. And we're so glad to have you both here. But Ricky, welcome. Ricky just finished his first service at 927. And and uh, what a blessing that was. So welcome to Salisbury. Krista and I have um, always loved an adventure, and one of our very favorite was to visit missionary friends in Tanzania 20 years ago, in particular the day that we, uh, they drove us through the Serengeti. Remember that day, Krista? I think it was 2001, is that correct, around that time period? During a time of year when 1.5 million wildebeest are migrating through that incredible part of the world. I've told you about the story of the dung beetle and the wildebeest. I'm not telling you that story today, although it's a great one. 
But this one, to cross through the Serengeti, we literally had to drive through the middle of that migratory path, surrounded by hundreds of wildebeest walking, some running, all, of course, in the same direction because they're in a migratory journey. But we noticed one guy off to the side, all by himself, standing tall, strong, proud. He, he wasn't moving. What's he up to, we asked. Well, our driver's name was a guy named Urio. Is that right? Urio? Urio? Something like that. He was incredibly intelligent Tanzanian who we just fell in love with and knew an answer to every question that we had, and we had lots. Urio said, that's a young buck, a proud bachelor protecting his turf. He'll stay right there and not let anybody within 20 yards of him, stubborn as a mule, he said. But everybody else is migrating. We said, what's going to happen to him? And Uriel just laughed out loud and said, oh, he won't be around much after sunset. Lions and cheetahs love proud wildebeests. The image of that wildebeest came to mind this week. Whenever uh, I read this gospel, uh, the gospel that we read this Sunday, as many of you know, we join with the vast majority of Christian churches around the world in reading through what we call a lectionary, which means that our Sunday readings are assigned years in advance according to a three-year cycle. This year, you may have noticed that we've been walking through the gospel of Mark, and we'll continue to do that today. We're in the sixth chapter, and the assigned reading for today is the death of John the Baptist. It's a story that may be familiar um, of John the Baptist, again, the cousin of Jesus who, what, wore camel skin and, and ate wild locusts and honey. Isn't that what we learn in Sunday school? And a heck of a preacher, by the way. People came from everywhere just to hear him preach, and including, oddly enough, this king of Galilee, who we know as Herod. His real name was Herod Antipas, who was fascinated by John. There was just something about John that intrigued this king, maybe because John was the only person in Herod's life that was willing to tell him the truth. A little bit about Herod. Herod was married to the daughter of the king of Nabatea, which is sort of a little bit south and west of, of Galilee, south and east of Galilee. But while visiting his brother Philip, who is a little bit north of Herod, you have to follow, this gets complicated. While visiting his brother, brother Philip, Herod fell in love with his brother's wife, who, who also happened to be his niece. But who cares, right? Love is blind. Herodias was her name, and so somehow Herod whisked her away from his brother, then divorced his first wife, and they married. Sidebar, this isn't relevant to today's story, but I think it's interesting about Herod's life. The father of Herod's first wife, furious. She was angry, or he was angry, and amassed troops along that border. Herod would be defeated years later, and he and Herodias were sent into exile in Spain. But that's in the future. Let's get back to where John enters into the story. John was highly critical of Herod's lifestyle. Not a surprise, really, except that no one was allowed to be critical of the king except John. He didn't seem to worry about that kind of social protocol. He was critical of Herod's lifestyle, in particular his incestuous relationship with Herodias, who was, let's see, he was Herod's niece, she was also his sister-in-law at one point, and now he was his wife. I mean, Herod flaunted anything and everything that he possibly could, certainly flaunted his wealth and his power. He built enormous palaces and monuments and and buildings throughout Galilee, and obviously married without any regard (laughs) to a moral code. 
And so at every occasion, or so it seems, uh, John would rail against the king and his wife, and Herodias didn't like it one bit. Furious she was and demanded that he be put in prison, which was, as it turns out, in the basement of the king's winter fortress. Why? We don't know, except that John sort of liked to be close. I mean, Herod sort of liked to be close to John. He was fascinated by John and, as it turns out, remained there for two years until one particular night when the king threw yet another grand extravagant party, but this time it was his birthday party. When he stood his wife and before the crowd, when he stood, I'm sorry, when he invited his daughter, new daughter whose name also was Herodias. This gets confusing, but anyway, it doesn't really matter. She did some elaborate and glorious and wonderful dance. He was overtaken mostly by lust. Don't go there and think too much about that. It's just what happened. And so, in any case, stood her before the crowd and said, look, I'm willing to give you anything that you want, including half of my kingdom. Well, you know her answer. She runs to her mom and asks, what should I ask for? And and her mom quickly said, ask for the head of John the baptizer, which is precisely what she got on a silver platter. Now, there are several questions that come to mind about this story, but one, it seems to me, is particularly relevant today. What actually motivated Herod's decision? And two words come to mind, pride and shame first pride. Herod was known for throwing parties. We've already said that. And, and this one was to be the party of the year. Again, his birthday, when, when he was eager for everyone to, just to be so impressed by his wealth and his extravagance. This man is a man who could do anything that he, that he wanted, and nothing was too much, nothing was too costly, nothing was beyond his ability. He was wrapped up in pride The Greek philosopher Aristotle said that pride, as it turns out, can be a virtue when used properly, defining it as knowing what we have accomplished and freely acknowledging that we have done it. We have pride in our children, after all. We have pride in an award rightly earned. Last week, uh, we showed pride in country. But the Old Testament prophet Obadiah says this, if unchecked, pride deceives, especially when it's the product of an inflated sense of oneself, an exaggeration of one's accomplishments or importance, which precisely defined Herod, don't you think? And it led to Herod's downfall. He was so eager for everybody to see his importance that when Herodias asked for John's head on a platter, Herod Well, he sort of hesitated, but not really, because in Scripture, the word that Mark offers is immediately. He immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. Immediately. Why? Because Herod wasn't concerned about John. Herod was only concerned about whom? Herod. Yeah. A kind of dark pride rooted in an overinflated sense of self and a desperate, desperate desire for others to see him in that same light. Herod would do anything not to lose face or to break his promise in front of the guests that he was so desperately trying to impress, so constrained by what others think of him. And here's the sad result. To save his own pathetic life, his own social position… Herod sacrifices the life of an innocent man, laying his head on a silver platter. 
There's no mistake about it. Herod's pride would cost John his life. But like that proud wildebeest in the Serengeti, it would eventually destroy Herod's life as well. How much time do you spend trying to save your life? Jack Shea, who uh, Jeffrey Hoy shared with me uh, a, a reading of his this past week, he writes an interesting passage. He, he says this, uh, that the lives we're often trying to save aren't lives at all, but social reputations. And then he, he offers this quote, we read every day of politicians and corporate executives, people at the top who harm the lives of others to protect their own interests or their own inflated egos to win at whatever cost, right? Even at the expense of truth or honesty. The heads of others, small price to pay, it would seem, in order to come out on top. It's a frustratingly vicious cycle that we experience over and over again. We see played out day by day, don't we? But before we're too, too quick to blame or to judge others, consider how often such positioning affects us as well, especially when we allow our own pride to be the lens through which we look when making the important decisions of our lives. Pride. And what of shame? I know, nobody wants to talk about shame, right? I apologize, but bear with me. Just a couple minutes maybe, because that's what we're going to talk about. You see, it's a part of the story that, that seems ever clear. And now granted, it's sort of hard to see. It's one of those parts of the story that you almost have to read between the lines. So I suppose we can't be certain about it, but it seems so painfully and sadly clear that part of Herod's decision that day was rooted in shame, which is ironic, isn't it? Again, here's a man who's from royalty. Uh, he had everything at his disposal, a, li a lavish lifestyle, palaces throughout the kingdom, a friendship with the emperor of Rome. He lacked for nothing. But his family, one of the most dysfunctional families in human history. I mean, let's just take his dad, right? His dad was Herod the Great, the Herod who was around when Jesus was born. So, his dad, let's see, uh, he murdered Herod's two, two of Herod's older brothers. A third older brother was executed for trying to poison his parents. His father had at least ten wives. That's all we know about, but who knows how many others, including several who were his first cousins and then at least one half-sister. At least one was executed under his order. Others were dismissed without reason. They just found their luggage, I guess, out the front door of the palace. In his will, Herod the Great ordered the execution of yet another son, and that 200, catch this, 200 of Jerusalem's most respected men be slaughtered in the streets of Jerusalem so that there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth at the sound, at the proclamation of Herod's death. When you say dysfunction, that's what you see in the dictionary, the family of Herod. Now, here's what's interesting. John the Baptist dared to expose all of that. He dared to expose the lavishness and the immorality of this Herodian family. He exposed the polygamy. He exposed the incestuous relationships. He exposed the dysfunction, and he called them to repent. 
None listened, of course, except for this one member of the family who we know as King Herod, the son of Herod the Great, who had, a, Scripture tells us, an odd fascination with him. Maybe even, I don't know, some might even consider sort of a friendship. I mean, he brought Herod to, or John to his palace, after all, where he remained for two years. I can only imagine that occasionally, late at night, they would have conversation with one another, perhaps. Why all of this? Well, I believe it's because John was the first and only person in Herod's life to tell him the truth, even though the truth filled him with so much shame. Shame, however, can destroy us, can it? If left unto itself, that's shame's purpose is to destroy you. You know that, right? I mean, it's that inner voice that says, I know you. I know the real you. I, your wife left you. Your dad, not who you say he is. I know you don't think you're, you're pretty enough or good enough or, or powerful enough. I know your mom pay, didn't pay any attention to you no matter what you did or, or what you became in life. That's shame, that inner Shame, that thing that will destroy us if we're not careful, destroy us by beating us down over and over and over again. Shame tells us that we're not good enough and always asks, who do you think you are? Brene Brown reminds us that shame, though, is not guilt. The difference in the two is really important, actually, to the story. You see, shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is, I am bad. Guilt is, I did something bad. Guilt says, I'm sorry I made a mistake. Shame is, I'm sorry I am a mistake. Guilt can move us to repentance. Shame forever eats away at our soul, which is why shame, psychologists tell us, shame is highly associated with addiction, with depression, with violence, with aggression, with bullying, with suicide, with eating disorders, and the list continues. John exposed the mess of Herod's life. But it wasn't the first time that Herod had heard it, except maybe outside of himself, because deep inside, silently, he had been living with that shame, that dysfunction forever. And so when John looked him in the eyes and confronted him with it, Herod became fascinated by John. He listened. He pondered. I'm sure in the dark of night, he hid his face in his pillow until he cried himself until dawn. But here's the deal. He never did anything about it. Never. He was too weak. He was too prideful. And so when confronted with a decision about John's life, he allowed shame to make the choice. And shame is what convinced him to kill John in the hopes that those inner voices would disappear forever. How often we make the same mistake. How often we think that our own destructive behavior will silence those inner voices drinking right? Drugs, violence, addictions, abuse, whatever. Fill in the blank. Sometimes it's someone else's head on a silver platter, but oftentimes it's our own. It's a sad story, isn't it? 
And you came today to hear the gospel. (laughs) I mean, really, (laughs) to be boosted, to be nourished, to be fed for the week ahead. So why does this story matter today? Well, because you know that Jesus points us to a better way, that Jesus points us, thanks be to God, to a better life, a more abundant life, a life that is ruled by love of self, uh, that is not ruled by love of self, but love of others, a life that that does not end in shame, but a a life that opens itself to a brand new beginning, a a life that doesn't regret, but a life that dares to repent, A, a Savior who does not walk away from us, but walks alongside us, even in the muck of shame, into the dawn of a brand new day. You know what I find fascinating is that is that the next story in Mark's gospel is, is, uh, is a story that is a perfect complement to this one. In fact, I'd love for you to go home and, and read it. It's the latter part of, of the sixth chapter of Mark. It's the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 hungry people, people who showed up that day, yes, to hear Jesus, but assuming that they were not good enough that there would not be enough that day for all. But you know, don't you? You know what they did not when they showed up that day, that with Jesus, there is enough. With Jesus, there is always enough. There is enough grace. There is enough love. There is enough forgiveness. There is enough happiness for us and for all people. I so wish that King Herod could have heard and believed that message. But he didn't. And so it's my hope and prayer that you will. Pride and shame does not have to control your life because there is so much more. With Jesus, there is always so much more. Amen.